Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Katie Beswick, who is a lecturer in drama at the University of Exeter. And Dr. Beswick's new book is called Social Housing and Performance, the English Council Estate on and Off Stage. So welcome to the podcast. Hello. (laughs) Um, This is an incredibly timely book. Um, It speaks really directly to lots and lots of discussions that are going on in uh, arts and cultural industries about social inequalities um and it's always strange with an academic book because they take sort of so long to write um that they end up being you know kind of really well timed and it'd be great to start off i guess with a kind of like little history of the project and where the project relates to um, your work more generally and your sort of interest in these questions of of space and inequality yeah um well the project starts off really um in my early childhood so I I was born um, on a council estate well not on one I was born in a hospital and moved to a council estate when I was baby and we only lived there for a couple of years before my parents moved off and and, um, bought a house Um, and when I grew up sort of most other people that I knew lived on estates Um, you know pretty much all my friends I think I only had one friend at secondary school who didn't live on an estate lot of my family lived on council estates so I was always really aware of estate spaces and always really aware of the fact you know that we didn't live on one anymore um and that being kind of a you know kind of a thing that I that I knew about myself and and it, it made me quite different I suppose um from the environment that was around me and then you know, as I got older and, and went to university and things and started thinking about class, because, you know, when you grow up in a in a sort of working class uh, area and most of the people around you are more or less working class, you know, um, you, you don't really think about about class inequality. And then when I got to university, I went to the University of Exeter, where I now teach. I started to really um, think about, you know, my background noticed the, the sort of differences in, in, you know, the way that I thought about things, my behaviour, my experience to my peers. Um, and I remember one tutor made a comment to me after I did a, sh- like I did drama uh, and I performed, and he made a comment to me about, you know, I'd done Ibsen, I think, um, and I'd played like a 70-year-old rich woman. And he and, and in my critique, he was like, well, you know, that's difficult to, for you to play because you're just council estate and you'll never really be anything else. And it really sort of shocked me because, you know, I never really thought of myself in that way. And obviously I, I didn't live on a council estate for most of my childhood. So I guess that was the point at which I was like, oh, so, you know, this this is a thing. Um, and. And that comment really stayed with me and I went to drama school and I trained to be a performer. And again, like the kind of roles that I was asked to do were always these really sort of like underclass kind of roles. Um, 
and I just started thinking about, you know, how are these representations speaking to, you know, the people that I grew up with and, and the life that I, you know, come from. Um, and I eventually decided I wanted to do a PhD and just start to think about how representations in theatre and, you know, arts practice were speaking to social housing environments. Um, I also worked for a little while as a housing officer, which was kind of separate. To, it, that sort of totally um, solidified my thoughts about council estates because as I, you know, I came out of uh, drama school and, and just got a temp job as a housing officer, which I ended up doing for a few years. And that, you know, that just really started, again, just brought all of those questions about how are the um, representations of these environments speaking to the actual environments, to the kind of forefront of my mind. And that, and that was the point I, I applied and did a PhD looking at that stuff. And so the, the PhD isn't the book, so the book's quite different to the PhD, but that's, that's the sort of the trajectory that I've been on um, for the last kind of 10 years working on, on the PhD in the book, if that answers the question. <laughs> I mean, that's a great setup, and it gives a real sense of your your personal commitment to this issue, as well as actually the um, the kind of broader context. You hinted at some of the negativity around this term, the council estate. Mm. It'd be good if you could kind of pin it down. I mean, you know, obviously English listeners will you know be kind of intimately familiar with the term, and you know, bring a lot of the prejudices that you're seeking to. Mm. Um, challenge and, and kind of uncover in, in the book to that term but it'd be good to hear a bit about what the term means you know the kind of like uh, the specific context of the term in in England or, or Britain and then why it's got this negativity um, why you know a, a tutor could kind of you know brand you as as council estate in, in terms of your um, drama experience yeah so in my book, and I'll get to this in a bit uh, more detail in a second, I use the term council estate in quite a specific way, um, but I think I'll save that for later. Um, broadly speaking, like when you use the word council estate, you're referring in England anyway to uh, discrete areas of social housing or discrete areas of housing that were once built as social housing, I should say. So they were once built as secure Lifetime tenancies provided a reasonable rent cost to people who couldn't afford to buy their homes. Um, that's quite a brief, ultimately reductive description. Uh, but it gives some idea of um, sort of what the term means for people who aren't familiar with it. I guess the second thing to say is that council estates emerged in the UK from the late 19th to the early 20th century. And that was as a result of uh, a wave of social movements addressing issues around housing for the working class, around kind of uh, problems that that came up from slum conditions in the sort of late Victorian era. Um, so, for example, uh, a lot of earlier states were built to home families moved out of slum conditions or to even if they weren't home in those families to replace uh, slums that, that were demolished. Um, and then you have the Homes for Heroes after World War One um, that's that's providing kind of safe, secure housing for a working class that's sort of been decimated through um, total war. Um, and then post Second World War, you've got the growth of the welfare state um, and then the rebuilding of cities after bombing. Um, and that's another big wave of council estate building. And I, I guess I go through those waves because what I want to sort of 
point up is that council estates weren't marginal at their inception and height. So by the end of the 1970s, you've got about, I think it's about 42% of the population living in social housing. Now, I know that's a contested statistic, but really my point is that it wasn't a marginal tenancy. Um, but then in 1980, you had the introduction of the right to buy policy, um, which was one of Margaret Thatcher's flagship policies where huge discounts are given to council tenants who want to buy their own homes. So for people who've never been able to afford a home, suddenly they can. Um, my nan, for example, bought a four-bedroom house with a huge back and front garden, and that was for about £8,000 in the 1980s. Now, even then, you know, you, you couldn't get a house for that much money. Um, so this is the point where we start to see a massive shift in how the population see council housing. Um, it starts to become a less desirable tenancy. Communities start fracturing um, because you have areas that were once totally social housing, like a lot of the new towns, for example, that then become stratified in terms of there's some owners, uh, those owners sell the houses or rent those properties out. So there's private renters and then there's the, the council tenants as well. And council tenancies start to become less desirable. Um, you also obviously have a reduction in, in council housing. Um, and then you fast forward to now, and I think we've got about 8% of the population in social housing um, and now it's almost impossible to be homed in social housing unless you're very poor or vulnerable, um, which is not to sort of make any judgment on people who live in social housing. It's just to say, you know, what we've really done is gone back to this reliance on exploitative private renting. Um, and meanwhile, house prices are rising to astronomical levels. Um and then there's other factors, obviously, in, in the housing crisis, but the whole trajectory of council housing, I think, tells the story of the housing crisis in the UK. Um, and it shows the sort of historical points at which sort of society has been more or less interested in investing in our country. So it works for everyone. And the points where we've been interested in sort of making profit for a few people. Um I guess the, the, the point I just want, again, there's sort of a third point I want to make, which is about, so in the book, I use the term council estate and I call it a generic term. So when you say the word council estate to a British person, as you sort of indicated at the start of this, of this podcast, most British people, at least most English people, will have a particular bank of images and ideas in their mind that are going to be shared. Um, and that's whether they've lived in an estate or not. Um, and so the word is a cultural shorthand. And really what my research has been about is about thinking through how that shorthand's produced and what it means, which is actually quite complex. So one dominant aspect of the generic idea of the estate is in this loaded, negative, stigmatising reput reputation. So estates are often framed in sort of newspaper stories about what happens on estates or in documentaries and so on as sort of spaces of low morals where there's crime, loose sexuality, bad taste. And these stigmatising ideas are bound up with wider stigmatisations of working class people. Um, and those have already been explored by a lot of the scholars that I cite in the book. So Bev Skegg, Stephanie Lawler, Lisa McKenzie. Imogen Tyler, etc. Um, they've all done a lot of work on really thoroughly mapping out that abject working class and how that, you know, operates through representation. Um, 
But what I also want to say and what I also say in the book is that representation um, or in representation of the states, this sort of abject negative depiction is dominant, but it isn't the only idea that circulates about states. So there's also a certain fetishization of working class culture. Um, there's a resistance from estate residents themselves and there are nostalgic and sensational and beautiful depictions of estates as well. So I think, although that, you know, obviously that, that there is that negative discourse that's really central, it is more complex, even in, you know, representation than just sort of estate equals totally negative. I mean, the struggle over representation is the kind of the core of the front end of the book, both in terms of the kind of class politics of theatre, but also um, struggles over um, what is real and and what is represented. And I guess you know we, we've set out you know some of the kind of um, political uh, social context for the council states, um, and you've gestured to some of the. Um, empirical and theoretical work but mm. one really kind of obvious way to, to crystallize this is, is to take a couple of examples mm. and I guess we might do um, you know maybe one really obvious one where the politics of class and race uh, intersect uh, with with representations of the estate and that that's the case of Mark Duggan which yeah. um, is really important to uh, the first chapter of the book uh, mm. and telling that story I think would, would be a really straightforward illustration of all the things you've been talking about so far. Yeah so um, I, I guess I should just frame this by saying so the um, the first chapter of the book looks at what I call the quotidian performance of the council estate. Um, so one of the things I'm concerned with is thinking about how the performance and the everyday exist on a spectrum um, and the ways that actual people are depicted and the ways that actual be- people behave um, are kind of this reciprocal kind of dynamic, operate in this sort of reciprocal dynamic um, exchange, if that makes any sense. So I look at three examples. I look at um, Karen Matthews, who's a woman from Dewsbury Estate in the north of England, who was convicted for kidnapping her own daughter. I look at the pop star celebrity Cheryl Cole, whose council state background is quite often referenced in interviews about her life. And then I look at Mark Duggan. So Mark Duggan was the um, young mixed race man killed by police um, in 2011. And his death sparked the 2011 riots. So he is sort of um, bound up with ideas of the estate because he's associated. He he was raised on the Broadwater Farm Estate in London. And the Broadwater Farm Estate had... um, you know, in the 1980s, 85, I think, the Broadwater Farm riots, which um, are kind of iconic in, in sort of race class history, the history of the estate in the UK, um, and the tensions between the sort of black community and the police that that epitomised those riots um, never really went away. So that w- what you have when, when Mark Duggan is killed is you have a press response and a sort of response from the state, which is this is a dangerous black gangster who is everything that inner city estates are. He is dangerous, he is criminal, he is corrupt, he is lacking in morals and he deserved to die and the people rioting in his name are also criminal, feral, underclass. And you have this as a really sort of strong initial response from politicians in the press. Um, and then what you have is, and, and that's sort of the negative representation and, and that is the way that, the, that this sort of, 
you know, when I talk about reality and representation, it's like at what point is there any truth in those depictions? And at what point um, is that narrative part of a kind of myth of the council estate that just gets played out through these individual figures? Um, and then, but then what you have that's really interesting with Mark Duggan is you have his family and supporters really contesting that narrative and you have a really strong pushback. Um, there's a really interesting documentary called The Hard Stop that offers an alternative perspective on what happened to Mark Duggan and on the conditions that kind of created his death and the emotional impact on his family. And again, that that documentary goes back to the estate and, and th there's a really interesting moment when his cousin, I think it's his cousin or one of his friends sort of talks about the estate as, um, as home to them. And this sort of flock of birds fly up and it's, it's really quite a beautiful moment where the estate looks different to the way that you, that you often see it in these depictions. So really, I think the Mark Duggan example is interesting in that it shows this negative depiction, but it also shows how residents, how um, people who want, who are, affected by these negative representations in one way or another uh, are able to um, also use representations of the estate to contest that do dominant narrative and to and to mix things up a little bit and you know that movement to um, get justice for Mark Duggan has really been bound up or you know kind of at least contemporaneously contemporaneously is that the right way to say it um, with the Black Lives Matter movement and and so there's kind of a global element to to all of this kind of race and class politics as well that I think plays out really interestingly in the story of, of Mark Duggan. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm hoping to kind of show in that in that section of that chapter. I mean, I mean, the thing that sort of comes up now is that you know we we've talked a lot about um, I guess you know broad social inequalities. You know, you've talked there about you know a specific uh, incident and media representations mm. not really mentioned like theater at all <laughs> so how does this connect and how does this kind of play out um when we're thinking about contemporary performance and i guess the sort of the the, the middle part of the book is is you know dealing with and cor correct me if i'm wrong actually but you know kind mm. of on stage maybe like traditional what yeah, I call it mainstream, but that's just yeah. mainstream theatre. But that, you know, it's really, I'm talking about subsidised, building-based. And then stuff that's more kind of site-specific and deals with uh, the estate as, you know, almost not something to be represented, but, you know, almost, you know, something to be kind of, in some cases, used as, a, you know, a kind of backdrop for a performance. And and the one that stood out uh, was the discussion of Rita Sue and Bob 2. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, has been a film and also, you know, it's kind of had um, a bit of a revival uh, yeah. as well. Um, and that's got a very particular kind of like spatial class politics as oh. well as gender politics to it. Yeah, it has. Um, so to answer the first part of your question, which is about how does all this feed into the theatre or what's all this got to do with the theatre? So... You know, theatre is a representational form, obviously, and this book is coming out of a, broadly speaking, it's an interdisciplinary book, but broadly speaking, a performance studies tradition. So I am interested in how these representations all play out in plays. Um, and, you know, I do do a little bit of mapping of that in the Mark 
in the Mark Duggan section where I talk a little bit about a few plays that kind of were produced around that time or leading up to that time. And you can sort of see how the media discourse is coming out in the plays and then how the plays are sort of in some ways sort of authenticating that media discourse or occasionally challenging it or making it a bit more complicated, but often not doing so. Um, and then in, in the chapter on, on what I call mainstream plays, um, what that's really about so is so as your work um has evidenced there's a big problem in subsidized theater in in arts as a profession with class participation so there are barriers to access for creative workers from working class backgrounds um and subsidized or, or mainstream theater spaces aren't catering or aren't perceived to cater to working class audiences so um Theatre is perceived, and to some extent is, a culturally elite space and a huge demographic of the population are excluded from participating in that. Um, and until, sort of, as you said, this book sort of comes at a time when suddenly no one's been speaking about this and now everybody seems to acknowledge that this, it, this is an issue and that's great. Um, and so class has been more or less visible um, and particularly less visible in policy initiatives that seek to address even issues of class inequality, really. So I have this whole section in in the book where I talk about the Arts Council's taking part survey and how that does a really weird job of sort of talking about class without ever actually using the word class. Um, and while all this is going on, all of this sort of we don't want to acknowledge that class exists or we don't want to really talk about the problem in a, in a sort of in anything other than a, a euphemism or or kind of in, in hidden terms, you have that going on in policy and that's both sort of funding policy and in, in theatre policy, theatre's own policies. Um, but meanwhile, you do have working class people frequently depicted on stage, particularly in social realist representations. And in these representations, the estate often appears as sort of a signifier or as another um, moral euphemism uh, that flags up you know these characters are working class so you you'll either get the play being set on an estate or you'll get a working class character talking about being from an estate or the estate will be referenced in one way or another um but because of this these barriers to participation um at the levels of sort of creation and consumption these mainstream depictions often feel a bit like poverty porn so what i do in chapter two is i take specific productions of plays so I'm not thinking, so I, I look at Rita Sue and Bob too, but I'm not really thinking about that as a play text on its own. So I'm not really commenting on Andrew Dunbar's writing. Um, and I think that's quite an important distinction to make. Uh, what I'm doing is I'm looking at the 2000 production, which actually then toured in 2001 too, um, but was conceived in 2000. Um, and that was performed in tandem with a verbatim play called A State Affair, first performed at the Soho Theatre and then toured um, and what I do with that is I start to tease out this story of how Andrea Dunbar works in this play as this kind of authentic voice of the working class um, she's presented as the writer as this authentic voice um, so on the one hand you have that sort of absolute authenticity of the writer but then on the other hand, what you have is a really unequal class and power dynamics operating in the theatre institutions where the plays are created and performed. And also in, through those institutions, such as sort of critics, 
where the plays are received and they crystallize into these this really sort of ambivalent depiction of council estates and working class people so you know you have this this um depiction in Rita Sue and Bob two of these girls who are who by all sort of moral middle class dominant standards are kind of morally lax they're 15 they're having an affair with their babysitter who's married and they don't really seem to care about that they haven't got any kind of more that they're not sort of examining their own morality and and you don't get the sense in the play that they're being groomed although obviously there is now especially with with all the sort of um recent hideous stories of uh, of the total exploitation of working class girls that lens that you might want to then put back on it but that's not what's happening in the story and I think that um critics especially have found that really hard to reconcile this sort of depiction of an estate that they recognize but it isn't the you know the depiction in itself is quite celebratory in a lot of ways and it speaks it with voices that are sort of recognizably working class and with um a language and a lens that obviously comes from from somebody who, who understands the texture of what's being put on stage um but then you also have this mediation this critical response and this realist performance form that are kind of determined to offer the same reductive hopeless council estate poor council estate hopeless narrative um and that's kind of reinforced again by the verbatim play estate affair which um one of the uh, the writer of that, Robin Stearns, went back to the estate um, and to Leeds and Bradford more widely and, and did lots of interviews in order to write that play. And you sort of get an even more hopeless estate than the one that we've left in, in the 1980s with Andrea Dunbar. Um, although, again, you know, I talk in the book about how actually, you know, when you, when you see the play on stage, it is more nuanced than that. Um and you get similar themes coming up with um, site-specific performance where yeah. I guess people have, have kind of gone in with, again, almost exactly that kind of cultural baggage mm. and that sense of doing some speaking for sites and speaking yeah. for places which end up replicating um, these kind of cliches and, and uh, inaccurate depictions. I, I guess, though, I mean... I, I think you said that out really, really usefully, but it might be worth highlighting the way you try and nuance this um, a bit. Uh, and one of the things you're really keen to do is, is stress that we shouldn't have a kind of binary analysis yeah. um, of theatre's role here. And we shouldn't just, you know, kind of think of um, almost a sort of, you know, kind of um, colonisation or, or an exchange of, you know, individual stories for stuff that can make you know directors famous or whatever and it'd be interesting to hear some of those kind of critiques of of these sorts of, uh, of binary positions yeah so one of the, the um should I, i'm going to start by talking about one of the plays that i talk about which is uh called slick so slick was a site-specific piece so i move out of the mainstream theater chapter with andrew dunbar and all of that and i leave that in chapter two i think and then i move into a chapter that looks at plays that are what i call located on the estate so site-specific works um and particularly i'm interested in in those estates in the context of urban regeneration or redevelopment i think um so one of the examples i write about is a national youth theater project called slick so that was a site-specific project um 2011 it was performed um, and it was explored 
So it was part of a trilogy of these really large plays. So they had about 300 performers. Um, and this trilogy of plays explored the environmental, it, it was sort of environmentalism, um, tri- environmental trilogy. Um, and this particular play, Slick, explored the impact of plastic in the seas and oceans. So in that play, that play was performed on the Park Hill estate in Sheffield. And the estate in the sort of world of the play was this ship, the estate's blocks that were a ship on which the audience would get on. And we travelled, we walked through the estate onto this island called Utopia. So in the performance, the audience become part of the action. Um, And we see how as we travel through this ship, we meet these stowaways who tell us how this sort of seemingly utopian project where gap year students are traveling out to this island to participate in the environmental cleanup of plastics from the ocean is actually really corrupt and exploitative and we start to see that these there's stowaways on ships trying to escape from the island that's that's really exploiting them for profit and the play was really interesting in the sense that so the park hill was undergoing a, a regeneration which was quite controversial by a, a company called Urban Splash, that regeneration is still ongoing. And as part of that regeneration, um, which is going to see a huge reduction or has seen a huge reduction in the number of homes available for social rent, so that council estates function as a sort of social housing becomes completely decimated, um, the developers, Urban Splash, have used art as a means to sell the positive vision for the estate's future. So there's been numerous art projects that have happened on the estate. I talk a bit about that. There's a very famous piece of graffiti, um, I Love You, Will You Marry Me, that's been depicted in kind of this neon sign. Um, so art practice ends up coming becoming quite complicit in this development, which is part of a wave of developments that are massively reducing the capacity for social housing and profiting from the housing bubble, the displacement of working class communities and often profiting from working class sort of art and culture too. Um, So in Slick, the sort of tension that's really interesting that comes up in the play is the play with this sort of critique of this utopian project that then kind of falls into corruption is seemingly aware of its own role in the positive reframing of Park Hill as this edgy site for property investment. So although the play is still part of this so-called art washing, so it conceals this violence of speculative property redevelopment from view by being this play put on by young people, um, celebrating the um, architecture of the Park Hill. At the end of the play, there's like 200 aerial, there's 200 dancers and then, you know, 30 or 40 aerial performers coming down the building that's picked out in these amazing neon lights. That's the cover to the book, actually. Um, so it's this quite spectacular, amazing performance that, you know, really doesn't give you time to think about what's actually going on at the level of, of, of the redevelopment. But the production itself doesn't play a straightforward role in this model. So the artwork does not the artwork is critiquing itself as it's happening. And so you can't really say that it's totally complicit in the redevelopment because clearly it isn't, but it's also not not complicit either. Um, so when I talk in the book about these really reductive analyses or these really reductive conversations about art happening in the context of redevelopment, I'm not really talking about scholarship so much as I'm talking about the sort of public debate, particularly the online debate, so there is a lot of nuance in in a lot of recent arts criticism, especially. 
people like Jen Harvey, Cecilia Sachs Olsen. And Anna Minton has just done a book with Dan Hancocks and a bunch of other people called Regeneration Songs. And they're all acknowledging that there is this ambivalence in a lot of, of arts practice that takes place in the context of regeneration. Um, but that that kind of nuance never seeps out in, into the public debate. And so you either get these projects that are painted as kind of really um, amazing kind of beacons for community engagement and the, the works of social good, or you get these conversations where the artist is absolutely an art washer, they're complicit in, in gentrification, it's their fault that gentrification is happening. And what I think is that even where a work is really, really flawed and we hated it or where it was really compromised politically or alternatively where we thought it was amazing, uh, we have to try and think about the contexts through which it's working and the different layers it's working on. Um, so people seem to want to point to artworks and say that's really crass and stereotypical or that's really obscure and elitist. Um and like, yes, that is often the case, but there is normally more going on than that. And I think this is important, not just from a sort of academic point of view, but I think what we do by not allowing ambivalence in the public debate is we degrade artwork and we degrade the whole sphere of arts and culture. And in doing that, in making these public debates where art is slated all the time or trivialised or crit criticised or told it's complicit in these awful neoliberal processes, which, of course, it is because we all are. Um, but that is one of the ways that the system works to keep working class people out. This is what I believe. I think they aren't, you know, they aren't stripping arts education out of private schools. They are giving young people that go through elite education the tools with which to understand sort of nuanced ways that, that art works. You know, it's only frivolous and pointless and dangerous and damaging for our children and our families. Um, we're the people who are not encouraged to see the value of artworks because, you know, they don't they don't want the, the system doesn't want to enable working class people to take up those spaces in the in the cultural industry sector because then who's going to do you know all the work that nobody else wants to do um so i think we owe it to ourselves really to engage with the ambivalence of creative practices and to really think about what it's doing and to find the moments at which art is really enabling us to see things differently or to think differently um and opening us up to realms of sort of beauty and care and kind of aesthetic transcendence or, or you know, whatever other um, term you want to use. I think I talk about Paul Crowther's, well, I do talk about Paul Crowther's um, idea of the sensuous manifold in, in the book quite a lot. Um, yeah, so it is a kind of political point for me as well, this idea of, of, of embracing the ambivalence in these artworks rather than just to sort of, me trying to have a, an academic totally academic debate about what's going on in the artworks i mean we, we've only really scratched the surface of the book really a lot in terms of the analysis of the examples the the kind of conclusion and, and, and sort of final sections of the book mm. precisely at that um yeah. defense of theater practice which is mm. subversive uh you know which offers you know really kind of direct uh, challenges and you know contests things mm. like uh, nostalgia and, and this kind of stuff but but I guess the the sort of and you know you, you've offered um, you know kind of um, political defense actually of of most of those things at a time when 
as you say, um, there is a specific class politics um, associated with questions about access to the arts, um, you know, and who who is allowed and who is not allowed. Um, not just that, actually, um, to do these things, but as the book says, into the very spaces um, of cultural production. But I guess the kind of, the way to wrap up is, I suppose a sort of broader question of of where you go next with this analysis. Um, it, it struck me in the book that um, there might be, you know, a, a sort of creative set of responses uh, to the book's work. And I know on Twitter, one of the artists you talk about um, has kind of, you know, highlighted um, how fantastic it is to be kind of, you know, recognised for your creative practice in, in this context. So I just wonder what sort of what's next for this this analysis, or is it the case that you've you've sort of had quite enough of the council estate? Yeah. And, you know, you want to do something completely different. No, I mean, I'm really interested in writing about cultural um, product, cultural. Uh, cu- what am I trying to say? I'm really interested in writing about um, plays, theatre, culture that is overlooked by um, the sort of elite cultural sphere and in writing about, about working class artists, particularly who don't get a lot of, of, of scholarship written about them. Um, so Conrad Murray, who, you're, who I'm a big fan of his work and I write about his work in the book and he's been really nice online actually about the book. I'm really pleased to have his work included and I'm hoping to... I'm hoping he's not going to mind me say this, but I'm hoping to shadow the um, rehearsal process of his next show and write something about that. Um, you know, what I'll write and, and what form it will take. I've got no idea yet. Um, so I'm definitely uh, interested in, in, in continuing to write about these kind of contexts and so on. Um, and I'm interested in seeing how some of the ideas that I have play out in different spaces so one of the things we haven't talked about in the book is its whole sort of spatial dimension in terms of the theoretical work but that's fine um but I'm interested in in for example my new project my new sort of big project my next book project is about the street as I don't think it, the street isn't a generic space in the same way that council estate is a, is a generic space but the, the street as a stage for performance and the street as a sort of idea that circulates in culture in one way or another is very interesting to me um you know we also haven't really talked there's a whole thread about hip-hop in the book which um is really important to me and interesting to me and about the sort of power of hip-hop as this cultural form that has of course been completely co-opted by neoliberalism but that still somehow manages to speak to people um and and come out and, and be useful to offering a voice for people who come out of uh, marginalised, I hate that term, but, you know, marginalised communities, conditions, conditions on the margins. Um, and for people, you know, Bell Hooks talks about clinging to the mar- margin as like a strategy of resistance. And I talk in the, the book a little bit about how hip hop is a form that enables that, that clinging to the margins. So I'm interested in thinking about the street as a physical space, as an idea um, about hip hop, particularly I've been doing the last sort of four or five years I've been following a dance form in New York called light feet that happens on subway trains. And I've been working with some of the dancers, um, that invented that form and, and perform it, uh, to, and thinking about a lot of these questions about cultural representation, um, resistance, co-option of, of artworks into the sort of sphere of capitalism through, light feet so that's sort of what I'm hoping that's where I'm hoping to take you know this sort of discussion for my next 
work but yeah there's there, I'm working on a lot of stuff so that at the moment like different chapters and this next book in fact next two books I'm also interested in in taking out there's a whole strand of the, of the second chapter second chapter that's about um the promiscuous working class women I don't know if you if that sort of came out for you but I'm really interested in thinking about about this figure of the slag and you know we used to that's what uh, my school my school was called Plumpton Manor and we used to be called Slaggy Manor and um, because it was a girls school where a lot of you know a lot of girls got pregnant very um you know before we left school and so it had this whole reputation and I'm interested in thinking again about how these these this figure sort of plays out in on stage and and particularly through realist representations so yeah I've got a lot of ideas <laughs> um, that I'm working with